This is Mortification of Spin from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We can only continue producing this podcast with your support. Visit mortificationofspin.org to make a donation. Listen now to decide for yourself if your favorite Reformed pastor is more than just a pretty face. The gang's pension for the serious, however, is not eclipsed by the silly. Mark Jones joins Carl, Todd, and Amy to tackle the huge topic of antinomianism. Reverend Jones brings important thoughts to bear on the current debate on justification, sanctification, and where the believer gets his assurance of salvation. Well, we're all sitting today in a a bar at a secret location just outside Washington. I've just ordered my uh, two colleagues, uh, Todd and Amy here, a glass of Tullymore Dew uh, scotch. Uh, I've given myself a shot of Lagavulin as it's a slightly more expensive brand. Uh, uh, More tangy and peaty, of course. Of course. Uh, And Todd, I wonder if you've seen uh, this new magazine I picked up the the other day. It's called Reformed Man Today. Oh, I have not seen that. Uh, Well, you really need to get hold of it because it's it's a new production from the PCA and the Mm. byline is uh, fashion and style tips for today's PCA office bearer. (laughs) Uh, And on the cover, we have our friend John Payne. Ah. Uh, those of you who are aficionados of, of Zondervan Christian literature <laughs> will know that John Payne actually features in a book on Christian soccer heroes yeah. from maybe five or ten years ago. And the chapter on John is entitled John Payne cover boy. John, if you're out there, have no fear. We've managed to locate a copy of this book and we will be reading moving sections from it <laughs> at various Fabulous. points during future podcasts. Some dramatic readings, yeah. Yeah, but I'd like to you know, recommend this, this Reform Man Today magazine mm. to our readers. I say, if, you, if you're in the PCA, I think it's going to scratch where you're itching. Um, John Payne actually has an article in the first edition uh, reviewing different uh, kinds of uh, bottle tan. Ah. So if you're a PCA church planter in an area where you don't have access to a, a local tanning booth, mm-hmm. you can certainly still look the part. Though That's I have good. to say that John looks a little bit orange uh, with the one that he's, <laughs> he's wearing there. Do they have anything on chest waxing? Uh, well, it's interesting you should say that because hmm. uh, there's uh, going to be a regular column by Rick Phillips uh, <laughs> entitled... Uh, Dressing for Biblical Manhood. Now, there's nothing on chest waxing in the first article that he's done, but there's a very, very fetching picture of John Wayne uh, in that. So uh, we're, we're certainly looking forward to, uh, to Rick. If you're out there, get your chest waxed yeah. uh, and write a report for a four man today. Um, we're sure that your PCA office bearers uh, will thoroughly enjoy your insights on that. Now, as I look down the, the bar, actually, I can see another aficionado of Tully Mordew, uh, and that is uh, Mark Jones. Uh, Mark, is that is that really you? Uh, I think it is, yes. <laughs> well, Mark, fancy meeting you in a bar just outside Washington. I thought you were based in Vancouver. But anyway, it's great to have you here today. We want to fire a, a, a few uh, questions at you. Um, chest waxing, uh, good idea or not? <laughs> Uh, great idea. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a question, Mark, for you. Is it true that we really do get three free sins? Uh, I'm inclined to believe it's, it's, it's the, the number's gone up in recent years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. at a seven myself. Okay, yeah, because I've been lobbying for more than just three. I thought, I thought that book aimed way too low. <laughs> Which, uh, which brings us, uh, you know, to the whole uh, conversation of antinomianism. The yeah. A word. Yeah, the A word. 
Yeah, clearly, Mark, you've written this book, uh, Antinomianism, uh, recently dealing with this topic. Uh, What was it that motivated you to take this on? I mean, this is a controversial issue. You're a pastor. You're also a theologian. Uh, What was it that, that drove you to focus on this topic rather than, you know, any of the other areas where perhaps Christianity is under pressure at the moment? It's been gradual, I think, because when I first came into the ministry in the PCA, I heard a lot about uh, sonship theology. And the more I heard about sonship theology, the more I I questioned whether it was really reformed theology. It seemed to be um, having some sort of reform basis and yet at other points going wide of the mark. And Mm -hmm. as I heard more and more sermons in Presbytery, general assembly just on the on the internet and stuff i started to see that there's a big branch in the new calvinist movement that um claims to be reformed but uh, some of the things that are said in uh, in the name of reformed orthodoxy just aren't true and with a little bit of uh, my training in the 17th century i was able to pick up on the structural similarities between antinomian theologians in the 17th century and modern day uh, theologians who speak very much like them. Mm-hmm. Wonder. Uh, so, so antinomianism, technical term meaning against the law. How would you describe it, practically speaking, um, within some of these neo-reformed circles, um, even within uh, the PCA and other reformed denominations? Uh, what, what form is antinomianism taking, taking on? Because nobody stands up and says, I'm an antinomian. No one stands up and says, I'm against the law. But what are some of the things that you're seeing that is telling you this is a problem? For me, it's, 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 a, it's a certain hermeneutical grid in their theologizing. So in their zeal to protect the doctrine of justification, which is a noble zeal in many respects, uh, they end up making justification do all sorts of crazy things. So uh, the phrase sanctification is simply the art of getting used to your justification. Right. Uh, simply it, it can't hold biblically right. at all. And then they'll go to a passage that uh, speaks in, in terms of what I think is sanctification, but they'll, they'll say, oh, well, you know, we, we just can't do that. So thankful for the imputed righteousness of Christ. Uh, and so it's a kind of way of looking at the scriptures and looking at um, the Christian life that makes it so dangerous. And the in a strange irony, I think, is that I think they actually do more harm than good to the doctrine of justification, uh, just as the neonomians uh, have done more harm than good to the doctrine mm-hmm. of sanctification. That's good. Nobody really wants to be called an antinomian any more than they want to be called a a legalist. But in your book, you talk about how these terms are two sides of the same coin because they're both Christological errors. I really like how you focus on um, the person and the work of Christ in our sanctification. But I have a question, and it's something I was thinking. It's not really in your book, and— something I thought about more after I was reading it. And that is just as a woman, I was thinking about how this error is attractive to women. You mentioned Anne Hutchinson in your book. And as you were saying, you were connecting some of um, that church history to, to things that are going on now. Um, Antinomianism at the time, I think was so attractive because it was a reactive doctrine really reacting against the the rampant legalism that was 
was there. And I think now um, there's been some really good teaching in the church on um, biblical womanhood. And there's also been some harmful teaching on that. And I'm almost afraid as a woman now that it's just become this this one-dimensional issue that we, we start making all of women's studies uh, being about uh, women's issues instead of just opening the door to theology for every woman as a whole. And so I was just wondering what your thoughts were, Mark, about um, do you think that this could be more of an attractive doctrine for women now? Do you see any similarities in that way? Yeah, I, I mean, in, in one respect, I think it's attractive to anybody who's a sinner. I mean, I wish I wish antinomianism was was the actual reflection of the New Testament. It would suit me just fine. But I can understand <laughs> what you're saying from a woman's perspective because it, it, there tends to be more um, how-to women's books than how-to men's books. I can't even remember being in a men's group and studying a book on like the five healthy principles of being a, it's just not something I've ever done, but I know mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, and it's interesting what types of books do seem to uh, meet women and their needs. I, I think the same could be said of uh, Jesus Calling. I was I was shocked to find out that that book was making it through our church, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to me, like wildfire. Mm. And yeah the comments I got was, well, you're not a woman. You don't understand. Wow. Uh, so, and it was by a, a, a good friend of mine who I have high regard for, but uh, I'm not sure how to even respond to those types of things. Because it, it does raise questions about the Bible, which was written by men entirely for women as well. Right. It just really points to me how uh, we need to be equipping women with good theology as a whole, and um, while the women's issues are important, and we definitely, uh, biblical womanhood is an important thing to teach about, especially in our, our very liberal culture today. But I think that we also feel under the pressure sometimes, like um, just guilt for not making the cut, maybe. Yeah. And so um, antinomianism can become very attractive. Like, I love how you say in your book that the whole grace, beating the grace horse can also become a law. Yeah, that was that was another thing that I noticed in some of the preaching I heard. I thought, you know, if I just need to believe the gospel more, I, I'm. It, what happens if I don't believe it enough? That's my biggest problem: is that I have right. to cut up this belief. Uh, and if I'm not being sanctified, is it because I don't really believe my justification? And then it inverts on me in a sort of oppressive mm. uh, um, way. Wow. Yeah, one of the interesting things in this whole issue as well, Mark, and and I'm sure you'll sympathize with this as a fellow church historian, is the way that certain historical figures have been picked up and used. Uh, And the rhetoric, of course, of Martin Luther is a very popular one because Luther's a hero. Okay, we're reformed, so we we pretend that the Marburg Colloquy didn't happen. Uh, But Martin Luther is an iconic hero to all Protestants. And uh, if he can be wheeled out to defend a position, then that has uh, a powerful uh, rhetorical force behind it. One of the interesting things to me is that the, the evangelical appropriation of Luther is by and large focused on Luther's writings prior to 1525. If you go to 1527, 1528, when Luther sends his guys out into the parishes to do visitations and see what's going on, they come back and report to Luther that all that's being preached is grace. 
And yeah. Luther writes his catechisms as a result of that and, and declares in the, in the introduction of the catechism that, you know, all that's being preached is grace and the people, therefore, are living like swine. They're living mm. like pigs. Uh, but it does raise the question of preaching this. How do you strike a balance between uh, the free grace of God and uh, the need for sanctification, between the, the indicatives of, of, of the gospel in Christ, if you like, and the imperatives of the gospel flowing from Christ? Well, for me, the it's, it's a case of, uh, I get sometimes asked, I was at a conference in Southern Baptist and Seminary, and they asked me a question, how do you deal with someone who's so overcome with guilt and needs assurance? And my, my answer is that I, I suppose in my old age now, at 33, I'm starting to see some things. And w- one is that there's no silver bullet answers or solutions to complex problems that each one of us has in the church. And uh, that's why I believe in a long, sustained ministry, because I can get up into my pulpit on Sunday and say something that might sound Luther-like, antinomian-like, and I've done that before and got in trouble for it. But when that's over the course of seven years and I'm preaching verse by verse or book by book through the Bible, I I tend to think that God's word when it's faithfully preached will take care of the various needs of the congregation and that I don't need to in every sermon try to be the hero by getting in some great um, ending where it's all fulfilled in Christ's justification. It's because people start tuning that out after a while because it's so predictable. That's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, in, in, because I, I, I mean, I really strongly identify with, with what you just said. There is this tendency, it seems, and and there was a an, an article that that ran on a well known evangelical ministry site recently uh, that did just that with uh, Jesus's uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, and uh, the writer said. Uh, that that parable uh, has nothing to do with uh, an imperative for the people of God uh, to show kindness and compassion to one who is hurting, um, but that the whole point of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan was that Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan. Um, what an exotic in- interpretation of, of that parable. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a sense in which I know that in the early church and stuff, you know, that I have no problem with saying Jesus is the good Samaritan. Absolutely. I think they missed the entire point, really, of the article. I think there's Jewish-Gentile relation issues going mm-hmm. on there and other things. But, you know, if you have justification driving your hermeneutic all over the place, well, you come to a passage where Jesus says, go and do likewise. And if justification is your primary lens, you're going to say, well, I can't, so thankfully it's done for me. Whereas I think the union with Christ model still gives Christ his proper place as the good Samaritan, but then we join in with being able to go and do likewise. So I think that's how I've tended to see it. Hey, Mark, let me ask you a question. Okay, so I'm I'm ordained in the PCA. I'm a teaching elder in the PCA, pastor of a PCA church. What would your counsel to me be if, uh, if you found out that my theological hero was, say, Gerhard Ford, um, that I was preaching that sanctification is really all about just remembering and reflecting on your justification, and that I seem to have no category for the third use of the law. As a fellow PCA teaching elder, what would your counsel to me be? 
particularly regarding the vows I've taken. <laughs> am, am I leading the witness right now? He needs to I, I think take you need another glass of Tullymore Dew question. Yeah. So, so I, I think the point. I think the point was made in my in my rather uh, leading question there. Well, why don't you tell us uh, quickly, Mark, before we uh, wrap up here? How does our relationship with the law change? Well, I, I guess change from being an unbeliever to when you're a believer. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I think the, the way in which uh, Dick Gaffin so helpfully expresses it is, you know, the, the law is our enemy uh, while we're outside of Christ. But when we're in Christ, it becomes our friend, even when it, even when, if it condemns us in Christ, it's still our friend because Christ has, has um, saved us, forgiven us, but it's also our friend in that it shows us, uh, a godly pattern for Christian living. And, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's just crazy. If you say that, you know, the, the law is spoken of so negatively, but if you think about what the law is saying is do not steal is also be generous. Should I really get up on Sunday and say, you know, I don't want you guys to be generous because we just mm-hmm. can't do it. And it's all fulfilled for you in Christ wow. or husbands okay. don't commit adultery. But the flip side of that is husbands love your wives. Tell me one woman who's going to get up and say, Oh, legalist. <laughs> Right, right. Say, brother, we, we want you to love, we want our husbands to love us. I mean, it's just ridiculous the way the law is treated at times. And it's, I scratch my head. I think sometimes people say things and it's, it's downright blasphemous. Mm. I think you're touching there on another issue as well, Mark, and that is that the, the whole idea that, that, that our ethic is just love, which sometimes yeah. comes through in these circles. And I've read it in, in, uh, in Lutheran literature as well, well, you know, Luther would not take a stand on homosexuality because his ethic was one of love. The issue, of course, is that that love is not love is not an aesthetic. Love has content, and if you turn to the Lutheran catechisms or you turn to the shorter and larger catechisms of Westminster Assembly, you see that that love's content is the content of the law. Now. The obedience to the law is to be very differently motivated, and it's never to be perfect in this life. But one simply can't throw the word love around, particularly in contemporary culture, when it has been disemboweled of any meaningful content. One simply can't throw the word love around from the pulpit and assume that one has fulfilled one's duty of ethical education. Yeah, yeah. We we need specifics, and if you read Colossians chapter 3 or the end of Thessalonians, Paul gives very specific exhortations, not just these mantras that are sound good, but, uh, you know, people need to be told specifics. And uh, I don't tell my kids, you know, I just want to see some love in this household and leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, Todd, I think, does try that at home. But, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it's been pretty yeah, it works really well as far on my as sons. I can yeah. See. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, we've been, we've been talking and, and, and making reference uh, to Mark Jones' book, Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guest. And it's a terrific book, Mark, I think really timely. Um, and, and actually, when it came out and I first began to read it, um, I, I had uh, dual emotions, one of really grateful that somebody's written on the topic, but also some sadness that it, it's been so neglected. Um, so, so thanks, first of all, for, for writing the book and for, for naming a few names, um, in our current evangelical culture, um, that's taboo, uh, because of the canons of niceness. Um, but I think it's important that you identified some specific 
um, areas and persons where this is uh, problematic. One of the important points you make in in the book is um, uh, the issue of, of, of assurance and, and how we come to be assured of our salvation. And you point out that justification, biblically speaking, was never meant to be the sole source of our assurance, but that sanctification plays a very real and powerful role in our assurance of salvation. I wonder if you'd take you know a minute to unpack that. Sure. I, and I, I think for me, again, the, the matter of assurance is, is the whole context of the Christian life. It's never one thing abstracted from. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm fully assured of my salvation and, and, and justification plays a role in that. But quite frankly, um, going to church and enjoying the fellowship of believers brings assurance to me. Singing a, a psalm brings assurance to me because most of the psalms, when you sing them, there's no doubt whose side you're on. Um, and hymns too. They're not so bad, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's a case of so many mutually reinforcing principles in the Christian life that you're never left with just one, but several. Uh, and to me, that's, that's the most helpful way to look at things uh, pastorally is not to ever isolate one, but uh, to look at the whole Christian life and, and what that looks like. And I think that's the key for a healthy doctrine of assurance. Where do you see baptism and the Lord's Supper featuring in this, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And and those are uh, those would be some of those mutually reinforcing principles. When when the Lord's Supper, we have it twice a month uh, instead of once or every Sunday. And then baptism, you know, I ask my children frequently about their baptism and. You know, the, the whole idea about improving on your baptism is so foreign to many people today. But uh, there's a another instance, and that's why I gave that example of Christ's assurance in that chapter, that when he was baptized, he received assurance from his father of who he was and what he was doing. And that's, that's the same for us. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that was, that was really good. And I think, um, you know, talking about all this covenantal life really um, brings together the whole idea of love too, that love has content, but love is also uh, covenantal. And, um, you know, we just see that in, in God bothering to uh, condescend in Jesus and then to give us his word to the church, his people. Um, this has been a really good talk. I'm glad that uh, you came along to the bar and popped in. Yeah, I got to get back to Presbytery now, but I'm sure glad I had a few drinks before that. Well, <laughs> yeah, thanks careful, for joining careful us. Careful how we'll you have, drive. Then, we'll have Carl pick up the tabs. <laughs> so don't worry about that. I, I have a private jet, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think the puppet master should pick up the tab for this one. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, seriously, Mark, thank you for the book. Um, thanks for your labors in, in making it possible. It's been helpful. Yeah. And, so well, and, and we are giving away some free copies, too. Uh, to uh, anyone, well, not anyone, but uh, <laughs> any of the winners uh, that uh, that are selected, if you'll just visit uh, the, the the Mortification of Spin uh, site on uh, on the web, and uh, you can uh, enter for a uh, a free copy of of Mark Jones' really timely and important book, Antinomianism. So, thank you all for joining us, for hanging out with us for a little bit on uh, Mortification of Spin casual conversation about things that count and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon
This has been Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Remember to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter to win a free copy of Mark Jones' book, Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcomed Guest. Mortification of Spin is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Alliance ministries include Reformation21.org, the Bible Study Hour with James Boyce, and events held from Florida to Sacramento. To learn more about the Alliance, visit AllianceNet.org or call 800-488-1888. We can only continue to bring you Mortification of Spin with your support. To make a donation, please visit mortificationofspin.org or call 800-488-1888. Please listen again. Careful with the chest waxing as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah.